So, you guys, most of you know my son, Paul Lewis. He's 13, about to be 14. But when he was six months old, he had a significant choking event, and he almost died. We called 911 for help, and we waited. And it seemed like it took him four years to get there. In reality, it was really just a few minutes. But the truth of the matter is, is when you're suffering or when you're watching a child of yours suffer or you're worried about their health, time becomes very important. And the value changes according to the situation. Well, today's passage is going to involve a lady who has waited many years to be healed and a man who has no time to waste. Let's read um, the passage, if you would. You want to turn to Luke chapter 8, verse 40. kind of fun. Every time I set the Bible on this, this stand, it starts to go down. It's the weight of the word, right? All right. Chapter 8, verse 40 of Luke. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter a girl of about 12 was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been, how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, He said, Paul, you forgot your place. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand, and he said, My child, arise, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Father God, we, uh, Lord, we come before you today. 
thankful for all that you've done for us. Thankful for the ways that you have provided for us, for the ways that you have met our needs, and for the fact that you know us. Lord, let us not be distracted today by anything. Let us be focused on your word. And Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would share what we need to hear, that you would share what we need to live our lives well this week, that we could follow you in such a way that people would know that you are our Lord and Savior. Lord, bless us this morning. Draw us to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in last week's sermon, Jesus and the disciples, you guys will remember, crossed the lake to Gerasenes. I'm not going to say that right. And Jesus calmed the storm. And then he dealt with the demon-possessed man and then the demon-possessed pigs. And after that, the people of that country asked him to leave. Go back to your home. Now, this is happening right in the heart of Jesus' ministry, right? He's performing miracles and healings. He's raising people from the dead. He's forgiving sins. He's teaching the disciples. He's traveling from town to town, and he's teaching those who will listen. And people are coming to hear what he has to say. Today's passage is going to focus on two situations, with spoken requests and unspoken needs. I want you to watch for the difference and the similarities in these two situations. Look at how they both approach the Lord with humility. Look at how they approach the Lord with humility. And then watch how Jesus responds, how he meets the needs of each. All right. We'll get started with the first two verses. Uh, now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. They were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came forward and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of 12, was dying. And as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. You remember, across the lake, those guys were saying, go away, go away, go away. But on this side of the lake, there was a crowd waiting. They were anticipating his return. They had seen, they had heard what Jesus had done, that he had been healing, that he had been teaching, that he had been performing miracles. And it caused quite a crowd to gather. And they had been following him from town to town. Now, when I think of a crowd, sorry, when I think of a crowd, I think of the balloon fiesta, right? It's that big, wide-open field, and there are people everywhere, but you can move around, right? You can kind of move between people. You're not stepping on anybody's toes. Um, there's people everywhere, but I think this crowd is a little different. It's more crowded. It's not that there are more people necessarily, although there might have been, but it's tighter spaces, you know, when you think of going down the street in Albuquerque, there are 100 feet across the street between houses. But in this town, whatever town it was, the streets were probably a lot narrower. They were probably more like an alley that we 
would consider an alley today. And these people wanted to be close to him. They wanted to hear what he had to say, and they wanted to see what he was going to do. Now, all these people are crowded around him, and in comes Jairus. He's a ruler, a leader of the local synagogue. Uh, he was an important man, responsible for everything that happens in the synagogue. If he were here at Mountain Christian, uh, he would determine who led music. He would pick the worship leader. He would determine who was going to get to pray and who wasn't. He carried a lot of power and authority. People would know him, and they would have made room for him to approach Jesus. This powerful man made his way through the crowd, and he humbled himself at Jesus' feet. And he asked, he pleaded, he begged, he implored the Lord to come to his house. Come to my house and see my daughter. She's only 12, and she's dying. A powerful, respected man is desperate, and his time is running out. He saw his own need, and he came to Jesus for help, for relief, for healing. And he believed that Jesus could help. He had heard the stories and the miracles. Now, when we have requests or needs, do we bring them straight to God? Or do we wait until time has run out and we have no other options? Do you completely humble yourself to the teacher? As a powerful person, as maybe you are, do you come to the itinerant teacher who has the power of God and ask him to meet your needs? Jairus, sorry, Jesus went with Jairus, and the, cloud, the crowd followed. The pa passage says that they were pressing in on Jesus. You think about that. They're bumping into each other, jostling each other, stepping on each other's toes. I'm guessing as they are traveling down the road to get to Jairus' house, the crowd has changed. It's gone from being the balloon fiesta group to being more like what you'd see at a concert. Right? If you've ever been up in front, those guys are all just crowding each other and they want to get closer. <laughs> they want to get closer and they want to, to see and feel everything. These guys are just crushing him. Which brings us to the woman. And a woman who was there, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. Can you imagine bleeding for 12 years? I mean, do you have some kind of an illness or disease or affliction that, that affects you daily and affects you for 12 years? Diabetes, right? People get diabetes. It tends to be a, a lifelong affliction. But things have happened. You can take insulin. You can take medicine. You can exercise. There are things you can do to make it more livable and not as debilitating, right? Well, back then... This woman was bleeding and had been bleeding for 12 years. And there wasn't any 
relief. This passage, this account, is also told in Mark and in Matthew, and Mark gives us a few more details. It says that she has gone to all the doctors she can go to. She has spent all of her money. She's done everything she can, and the situation has not gotten better. It's gotten worse. Back then, when a woman was bleeding, when it was her time of the month, she was considered to be unclean. Leviticus 15 kind of lays that out about what it means to be unclean for, for a woman, also for a man. Um, but when a woman has that discharge of blood, she's considered unclean until that discharge is finished. Then she could clean herself. She could again present herself before the Lord. But while she was bleeding, she was unclean. It was such that people couldn't even touch her or they would become unclean. If she sat on this chair, nobody else could sit on that chair or they would be unclean. Nobody could go uh, and be around her bed where she laid down. They would be unclean. It got to the point where uh, sometimes women would even have separate tents that they would stay in when they were bleeding. Well, that's bad enough for a week, a month. This woman is putting up with that for 12 years. She was ostracized. She was unclean to the whole community. People didn't come to her house. People couldn't touch her. They didn't want to be unclean. For 12 years, she was unable to be touched. For 12 years, people didn't come to her house, and people would avoid her. It's almost like she had cooties. But it just got worse. She's desperate, right? Her money is gone. Her options are gone. Jesus is coming. And she decides, I'm going to go, and he can heal me. But you know what? If I can just touch him, that will do the trick. She doesn't approach Jesus like Jairus who came before her. She doesn't approach Jesus like the centurion in chapter 7 who sent a messenger. Rather, she sneaks up through the crowd. Maybe she thinks that Jesus wouldn't allow her to come and ask. Maybe she thinks Jesus wouldn't touch her because she was unclean. I don't really know. But I do know she sneaks through the crowd. I'm guessing she's disguised somehow, right? She doesn't want people to know or they would all be making a fuss about, ooh, don't touch me, right? So maybe she's got a cloak on or something and she sneaks through the crowd, not drawing attention to herself. She sneaks through the crowd. She's got to get past everybody bumping and jostling. And he's right in front of her, and she's trying to touch him, and she's stretching. She's stretching and finally touches his cloak. And immediately, immediately she's healed. Can you imagine? After 12 years of suffering, of putting everything into getting that removed, relief from that scenario, she's healed instantly. I imagine after she did that and she felt that 
that maybe she stopped and the crowd kept moving. And her plan was just to, to discreetly move away, back away, let the crowd move forward, and then celebrate what's happened. But Jesus has other plans. He recognizes our unspoken needs. Jesus recognizes her unspoken need. And he says, who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Jesus said, but someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling, fell at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. How incre- I mean, there's so many things in this situation that are incredible, but with all the people pressing in and bumping into the disciples and Jesus and touching them and all the this jostling and stepping on toes and the stuff that happened, he instantly knew that she had touched him. And he asked, who touched me? Did he not know who touched him and why? Did he not know what happened? No, he knew. He knew. And he also knew that her physical body was healed. But he also knew that she had other things that need to be dealt with. She had other needs that she didn't even realize that he could deal with. Her shame at being an unclean person for so long and not being touched and touching the teacher, the rabbi, her Lord. Also her guilt at sneaking up and stealing a touch. Jesus required someone to fess up. The disciples, they tried to get him to move on. Oh, come on, Lord, we're not going to know who that is. There's so many people. No, 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 no. The synagogue's child was dying. They were under a time crunch, right? But Jesus had work to finish. Someone touched me, and I felt the power go out of me. Who was it? You can almost feel the excitement in the crowd. Who was it? Was it you? What happened? Did you see it? Right? They're all talking. They're all wondering. And nobody's coming forth. And finally, the woman realizes she can't hide any longer. She came forward. She humbled herself at her feet, at his feet. And in front of the crowd, told them all of her need of her suffering for 12 years, and she confessed it all to Jesus. And she also witnessed to the crowd the miracle of her being healed instantly. And then Jesus responds, right? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Right? She was worried that he was going to gripe at her, give her the business for, for touching him and being unclean. 
But that's not what happened. There's so many things that happened with that simple statement. He called her daughter. She's his family. She belongs. She's not to be ashamed of. She's part of my family and part of my father's family. She has the same rights as a daughter. Your faith has made you well. It tells others that she's no longer suffering from the bleeding. She's no longer to be an outcast. She's no longer unworthy to be touched. She's no longer unclean. And restores her to her community. It also demonstrates that the cloak that he's wearing is not magic. It's not the magic cloak that everybody touches the cloak and everybody's healed and, and better. It's not the garment. It's her faith in his power that allowed her to be healed. And her ending, his ending phrase, go in peace. Go with nothing hanging over your head. You don't owe anything. There's nothing left to deal with. Our transaction is finished. After healing her in one short statement, Jesus has resolved any shame or guilt she had. He's restored her to her community. He's acknowledged that she belongs, and he's cleared her account. He met her obvious needs, her physical and spoken needs, and he met her unspoken needs. He meets our needs, both the obvious and spoken and our unspoken, privately held needs. What a Savior, right? Now, this passage does leave one question. Well, maybe a bunch of questions, but one that I'm going to deal with. Why did it take 12 years of suffering before this woman was healed? Couldn't she have suffered for two weeks or a month and then Jesus healed her? Wouldn't that have had the same effect? Well, it could have happened that way. But if you think about it, God would not have been as glorified. She may not have been as humble. She might have approached Jesus, very similar to Jairus or the centurion. She wouldn't have had time to try everything. She wouldn't have had time to come to the end of everything that was humanly possible, the end of all of her finances, the end of her earthly options. She would not have been desperate for God to work through her. She may not have been the one in the crowd struggling to reach Jesus. And Jairus would not have had to wait through this scenario. God uses all things to his glory and honor including 12 years of suffering and interrupting a crowd. So while this, while Jesus is, is speaking and letting her go, we'll move on to 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore time just ran out for Jairus the messenger brought three messages your time is up your daughter has died 
2, it shows what they thought of Jesus. They thought of him as the teacher, but not more than that, and not the Messiah. The third message was, don't bother him. There's nothing he can do. Nothing he can do for you now. Jesus hears this message and he responds. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. As we expect from Jesus, he goes right to the heart of the matter. He's referring to the spoken need, the healing of the daughter, by dealing with the unspoken needs of Jairus. His unspoken needs were his fear and a lack of faith, a lack of belief. He feared for his daughter's life. He feared losing her. And he believed that Jesus could heal her, could heal her. But his faith was limited to the healing. Jesus counsels him, challenges him even. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Believe she will be made well. Jairus has seen the miracle with the bleeding woman, and he's heard much about what Jesus has done. So he knows that Jesus can do incredible things. I don't know how much time he had to think about it, but Jairus and Jesus continue on. And I'm assuming that Jairus is believing as they go. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were waiting and mourning for her. Wailing and mourning for her, excuse me. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and he said, My child, arise. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. When they arrived at the house, Jesus did something that was interesting. Most often, he is doing miracles in public. Most often, he is healing people and doing things in front of many people so that people will know. <coughs> Excuse me. So they'll know and can talk about and witness what he has done. But they arrive at Jairus' house, and he says... All of you guys stay out. The only people who can come are Peter, James, and John, and the parents. And you remember, they're with a crowd. And why can so few come in? I think there are a few different reasons. One, they weren't the only ones in the house. There were people already there, wailing and mourning and lamenting for the little girl, right? One reason might have been there wasn't enough room. I don't know how many people were in this crowd, but I'm sure 
there weren't enough room in that house. There wasn't enough room in that house for everybody. And it could cause problems, right? I'm a disciple. I get to go in. Well, I'm important. I get to go in. Well, no, no. There's no fussing. Jesus says, you five, come on. Everybody else, stay out here. Another reason might be the 12-year-old girl. Can you imagine the scene? She's on her bed. She's died. Jesus goes in and takes her by the hand and says, Child, arise. And she stands up. And when she wakes up, she stands up. There's 45 people in her room. They're all staring at her and cheering that she's awake. She's alive, that Jesus has done this great thing. That'd be pretty, that'd be pretty crazy for a teenage girl. The third option, I think, these parents have just lost their daughter. It's an emotional time. And then all of a sudden, they get to see her brought back to life. It's a joyous occasion. It's probably pretty intimate. I figure the reason that Jesus limited the number of people is probably some combination of all three. So that brings the question is, why only three disciples? Jesus' job, his ministry on earth, well, part of that was to prepare his church and to prepare the disciples to lead his church, right? So as he's going through and teaching and performing miracles and doing these things, he's teaching and raising up this group of men. He doesn't want them to miss out on this, but he knows that 12 is probably too many people to bring in that room. So he chooses Peter, John, and James, who are oftentimes thought of as the leaders of the disciples. And he brings them in because he wants them to see what happens. He wants them to see how to handle it. He wants them to see how they should interact with those parents, with that child, how they should wield his power and authority. They don't know. I know because I've read ahead, but Jesus is about to send all the apostles, all the disciples, off two by two to go and to heal and proclaim the kingdom of God in his name, in his authority. So this would definitely be the learning experience he would hope it would be. They entered the house and they find those people in there who are weeping and grieving. And Jesus assures them, she's not dead, she's just asleep. And they laugh at him. Can you imagine somebody laughing at Jesus? He didn't even tell a stupid dad joke. And they laughed at him. I wonder how many people did that. Jesus' response to them was to walk over and to take her hand and to say, child, arise. Her spirit returned and she got up immediately. I don't know how long she was sick or what her illness was, but I imagine she spent the last few days at least laying in the bed, not moving a whole lot, not eating a whole lot, kind of sickly, right? You guys have all seen that. Somebody's sick, they don't really feel like getting up and doing a whole lot. Well, it sounds like when Jesus told her to arise, she got up pretty quickly and stood up pretty quickly. 
that brings to mind youth and health, the opposite of being secret. And what does Jesus say after that? We need to feed her. Somebody get her a sandwich. The interesting thing here to point out is that Jesus didn't get food for her. He didn't even try to get food for her, but he gave somebody else that job. Jesus does many things to serve people, right? He's healed. He's taught. He's forgiven sin. He's taught about his father. He's preparing the disciples. That was his job, his role. That was his duty, right? It's a parent's duty or a family's duty to take care of a, a sick child, to provide for their needs, right? He didn't take on roles that belonged to other people. He let them do what their job is to do, just like he does with us. Lastly, he instructs the family to tell no one what's happened. Many of his miracles occurred in public. Why would he tell them not to talk about this? Lots of people testify. The guy who was healed from the demons, Jesus told him to go home and tell people what had happened. But he's telling his parents, don't talk about this. This is not something you need to be doing. So this is a little different. Jesus limited who could come and observe, and he told the parents not to talk about it. I think the reason is, is because enough people would be able to share the story of what happened without the parents having to be burdened with it. They had their kid to take care of. They had their things to do. Let other people spread the word. The people who were there weeping and mourning, they could tell of what happened. The disciples who were in there could tell of what happened. The crowd that followed them to the house knew why they were coming. They heard the messenger say, the girl has died. So when they saw her alive, they would know the story. They could tell. Word would spread well enough without the parents. So what do we learn from this passage? What do we take away from these two miracles? The melodic line of Luke is, who is this man? Right? It's teaching us about who Jesus is and about his um, attributes. So what does this passage teach us about Jesus, the Messiah? The easy takeaway would be uh, that he's powerful, that he can heal, heal illness, and he can overcome death. But we find that in other places. We already know that. I think there are two takeaways from this passage. The first is that Jesus knows and responds to our needs, our burdens, both the spoken ones and the unspoken. He can see our needs, where we fail, where we fall short, the obvious ones we pray about, and those that are quiet, that are hidden. He sees those and he can meet those. Now, I'm not talking about material needs. I'm not talking about prosperity or, you know, Lord, I really want a job that pays really well. 
not talking about that. I am talking about the shame and the guilt of the bleeding woman, about restoring her. And if you remember, it wasn't easy for her. He didn't just do it and it's done. She had to participate in that. But he made it happen. I'm talking about building and increasing the faith of Jairus. Jesus used the death and the reversal of death of his daughter to make that happen. Again, it wasn't easy, right? Jairus had to hear that his daughter had died. He had to travel through town with Jesus, knowing that she had died, only to see her alive again. Jesus knew the unspoken needs of each heart, and he met those needs. Jesus met those needs. The second takeaway is Jesus acts in accordance with God's will and his timing. Jesus used both of these situations. He used them to bring glory to God, to further God's will on earth, and to meet the needs of his people. In our passage, one woman had to suffer and struggle for 12 years before Jesus gave her relief. Jairus had to suffer through the illness and death of his daughter to grow his faith. One took 12 years, one took a whole lot less. God uses all things to his good and his timing. All things to his good and his timing. Now, how do these takeaways help us today? How do they help us be better Christians, better followers of Christ? Jesus knows and responds to our needs, our burdens, spoken and unspoken. This is meant to encourage us about how personal our relationship with him is. He knows us. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows what you're struggling with. What tempts you and what you need help to overcome. He knows us well. The second takeaway is to encourage our faith. Jesus acts in accordance with God's will and His timing. He doesn't promise that we won't struggle, that we won't suffer. As with the bleeding woman, it could last a long time. The encouragement is that you can be sure if you are struggling, that it will be to God's glory, that He will use it in some way to bring glory to Himself in this world, and it will be in His timing, His perfect timing. Trust and believe. You pray with me? Father God, we, Lord, we put ourselves in Your hands, and Lord, we trust You. Lord, we trust You to know what we need. We trust You to, to help us to find those things. And Lord, we just want to be utilized for your glory. We want to be utilized to help your will move forward on this planet. Lord, there are many of us who are sick or struggling, who are dealing with things. And Lord, we just, we just pray that we would be able to 
to relax in your will and know that you know what's going on, that you know what the plan is, and that somehow we fit into that plan. Lord, use us this week to be your light, to point people to you, and to share your gospel with those around us. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. All right.